Good morning, Faith Family. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. Pastor Matt will be back leading us in our time studying God's Word next week. But for today, I'll be kicking off our new sermon series that we are beginning, a sermon series from the book of Malachi. So if you will, take out your Bibles or open your Bible app on your device and navigate over to the book of Malachi. So Malachi is at the end of the Old Testament. might be easiest just to go to Matthew and then flip back a couple of pages and you'll be able to find it real easily. As we begin this uh, sermon series today, we are kind of re-engaging in something we are doing here as a church. A a two-year emphasis we are currently in that we're calling Too Strong, where we are desiring to grow strong as a church and to go strong to our community. We're now about halfway through our first year focused on growing strong as a church. We spent the fall kind of looking at the book of Acts, specifically there in the New Testament. And the reason why is because in the book of Acts, we kind of get pictures of what the church was meant to be, what it was like, the things that it did. And through that, we see pictures of who we are meant to be as a church and the things we're supposed to do as a church. Even in the fall, we actually, in addition to our sermon series, we had a a focus study for Wednesday nights that we called everyone to come to where we focused specifically on answering what the church is. If you missed that, those are now available in the resources section of our website. You can check that out. We'll actually be offering a new focus study this spring that's focused specifically on what the church does. We'll be sharing with you more info about that in coming weeks. But this is something that we're desiring to do together. And we're hoping that Malachi, actually our study of the book of Malachi the next few weeks, weeks is going to help us as well consider how we can grow strong as a church. Now when Pastor Matt first introduced this emphasis to us back in August and he specifically was talking about how we were going to spend time in Acts kind of throughout these two years. So far we've only made it up to kind of like the first part of chapter eight. There's much more to go. We'll be coming back to it here in a few weeks after Malachi. But when he was telling us why we were going to spend so much time in Acts, this, this is what he said. He said, so much of what makes the church strong and healthy is right there in Acts. It is a record of what God does in and through a people who are wholly devoted to him. So then, why don't we just go back to Acts? Like, why now go to Malachi? And that's a really good question. And in many ways, the answer to that question is we're going to Malachi because it's kind of The antithesis of what we see in Acts. If in Acts we see what it looks like for God to accomplish his work through a people wholly devoted to him, here in Malachi we find a people that have kind of completely abandoned their devotion to God. But we also see the faithfulness of God to come to them, to correct them, to warn them, to guide them, to guard them. So that's what we're hoping to see as a church for us, to also see how this message can help us consider are there areas where we need to be corrected? Are there things that we need to be warned about? Guards that we need to have up in order to avoid pitfalls that could face us. But before we get to all that, we want to kind of recognize that Malachi is not like the most uh, well-known book of the Bible, right? 
Um, in fact, you know, I know some of you have begun new Bible reading plans for the year, and that's awesome. Maybe some of you are doing kind of a read through the Bible and a year plan. So the ones of those that I found most helpful are ones that kind of each day give you like a little bit of Old Testament and a little bit of New Testament, maybe some Psalm and some Proverbs. Like you're getting kind of a mix of stuff, so you're not stuck in one, two place for too long. And if you, if you do a Bible reading plan like that, like you don't get to Malachi till like the last two days of the year. Okay, the end of December. And, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of us don't make it that far in our Bible reading plans. Like, we have every good intention, but, you know, sometimes I follow. But I want to encourage you, stick with it. It's worth it. Not just getting to Malachi, but, like, obviously, the whole thing's worth it. If you're doing that kind of Bible reading plan, you're about a month out from Leviticus and Numbers. So you're doing good. You're going to get there. It's going to feel hard, but there's really good stuff there, too. Keep going. But a lot of us don't, you know, we don't necessarily read Malachi all the time. If we hear teaching or preaching from Malachi, a lot of times it has to do specifically with tithing, which is, you know, our most favorite subject as Christians today, just giving of our money. We don't get to that for a few weeks here, so that's not what we're going to be talking about today. That's kind of really all we know about Malachi. So before we dig into the messages today, I want us to kind of just get a general broad understanding about what's going on with this book of the Bible. And so to kind of help uh, provide a little bit of context for us, I'm just going to read for us the first verse of the first chapter. Okay, so Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 reads this way. A pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Okay, so I'm going to start with the last word of that verse, Malachi. Now, in your message notes, here's this. Malachi means, that word, that name means my messenger. My messenger, which begs the question, whose messenger? And the answer to that question is God's messenger. So this is the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So the message that this messenger is bringing is God's message. It's the word of the Lord, the message that belongs to him. And this word messenger, it's used throughout Malachi to refer to a bunch of different things. So the priests of Israel, they're referred to as messengers. The Messiah, there's actually foretelling the Messiah, he's referred to as God's messenger. And in fact, the forerunner, who we now know as John the Baptist, he's foretold in Malachi, he's called God's messenger. And then we have Malachi himself, like the prophet, the one who wrote this book by, you know, through Malachi. He's called the messenger as well. But he's the one that does give the book its name. He, he's the one bringing this message. And it, I like that because it gives a good definition to helping us understand what his role is. And not just him, but the role of all the prophets throughout the Bible. Because the book of Malachi is a book of prophecy. It's a book from a prophet. It's the last of what we know as the 12 minor prophets in the Bible. And then we may ask ourselves, okay, well, what exactly is a prophet? Some of us think of prophets as like fortune tellers almost, people that kind of tell the future. That's not really what a prophet is, biblically at least. Like biblically, a prophet is someone who speaks the word of God to the people of God. That's what a prophet's job is, to listen to God, to what he wants to say to his people, and then to go to God's people and to tell them what God said. In other words, if we use the language of messenger, a prophet is a human messenger carrying a divine message. A human messenger carrying a divine message. And that's who Malachi is. He's bringing this divine message to God's people. And the way that he's doing that specifically is writing it. Here in the CSB, it says that this is the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Literal translation is by the hand of Malachi. Literally, he wrote this stuff down. 
Well, when was this written? When did Malachi write it? Because a lot of other books, a lot of other prophet books, they give us good context clues. They tell us this is during the reign of King so-and-so, or this was at the time of this thing that happened, and we're able to easily place it in history. And Malachi doesn't kind of give us that. We have to dig around a little bit and figure things out. But the answer to that question of when it was written is this. Malachi was written after the exile. After the exile. So quick recap of Old Testament history, right? Go back to Genesis. God's going to establish a people. He calls Abram out of Ur. He makes covenant with him, right? He's going to make his descendants into a great nation. He's going to bless them so they might be a blessing to all nations, to all peoples. That covenant continues through his son Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. They're the patriarchs. Jacob has Joseph and his brothers. They are the forerunners of the 12 tribes of Israel. They end up enslaved in Egypt. They cry out to God for help. God sends Moses. There's the exodus to the promised land. They're established in the promised land. There's a period of judges who act on behalf of God, bringing about his justice for God's people and against God's enemies during a time. Then they cry out for a king. So God gives them a king. First it's King Saul. Then there's like the ultimate King David. And then after him, his son Solomon. And then after that, things really go off the rails. And the kingdom ends up split. We have the northern kingdom of Israel made up of 10 of the 12 tribes. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, named after the tribe of Judah, with a little bit of Benjamin thrown in. And all the kings of Israel are really, really bad. They don't follow God. They don't obey him. They don't lead the people to obey them. In fact, they lead the people to worship false gods. And God sends prophet after prophet to warn Israel that they are disobeying him. This is bad. I want you to return to me. I want you to repent. And if you don't, judgment is coming for you. They don't. And judgment comes. Assyria comes in and completely destroys Israel. It's no more. It's done. That just leaves Judah. Now, Judah, they've got some good kings, some kings that love God and lead people to love and to follow God and to obey him, but they've also got some bad ones. It kind of goes back and forth a little bit. And, of course, God does like he did with Israel. He sends prophets to Judah specifically say, hey, guys, you've got to listen to me. You've got to follow me. Remember the covenant. Remember, you're my people. I'm your God. Return to me. Repent. Come back to me. If you don't, there's going to be judgment. And they don't. And so there's judgment. And God brings Babylon in. And Babylon conquers the southern kingdom of Judah and carries off those people into exile. Now, every time God sent these prophets to Judah and told them that this judgment was coming, he also included a promise, a promise of restoration, of return. And eventually, of course, God keeps his word. He fulfills his promise to his people. And they get to return to Jerusalem. And things are looking good. They rebuild the temple and they rebuild the walls and they renew their covenant with God. We read about these things specifically in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's around that time, around the time of Nehemiah specifically, that Malachi was probably written. The way we get that is there were problems going on with the people that Nehemiah was having to deal with that he writes about. And Malachi is writing about the same kind of problems. So Nehemiah tried to deal with them and then kind of had some success. And then the people fell back into those patterns. And now we kind of have Malachi having to address many of the same things. And so that's when this was written. Historically, year-wise, sometime within around the middle of the 5th century B.C. That's, that's what's going on here. That's when this much. We were calling this sermon series of people reclaimed because this is the period in which reclamation is occurring. The people are reclaiming their land, reclaiming the temple 
in Jerusalem, their worship of God, reclaiming their covenant with him, which is a picture of God reclaiming his people, of him fulfilling his promise, of him bringing them back to him. And yet even in the midst of being reclaimed, they continue to struggle. They continue to have problems. And so God sends his messenger with his message. And the message that Malachi brings is rather unique within comparing it to all the other prophets because the message of the book of Malachi, it's almost exclusively God speaking in the first person. It's almost exclusively God speaking in the first person. If you look at other prophetic books, we will see examples where the books are stories about a prophet. And in that story, there's a message from God. So think about Jonah, right? Jonah is not speaking, it's a story about Jonah. And in there, Jonah speaks words of God to Nineveh and words of God are spoken to Jonah. But it's kind of about his story in general that we learn what the message is that God has, not only for his people, but for all peoples who find themselves enslaved to sin. Other prophets, the way they live their lives is specifically a metaphor for the message that God wants to communicate to his people. So think about Hosea and his pursuit of his unfaithful wife and how that is a picture of God's pursuit of his unfaithful people. That's the message that he's delivering through the prophet Hosea. But for most prophets, it kind of involves all kinds of different things. They, They tell a story and sometimes it's about their life and that that's involved. But often they are also quoting directly from God. They're also offering commentary on those quotes directly from God to help people understand what it is that God is saying. So it's a mixture of all kinds of different elements. But here in Malachi, Malachi the messenger barely shows up at all. He's not really doing a lot of speaking. He kind of interjects some he said, God said, the people said, just so you know who's saying what very specifically. But other than that, he's letting God do the talking. He's just writing it down and then giving it to the people and letting them hear it, kind of staying out. And even when you read Malachi and you read the people said, it's normally God saying what the people said, what he has heard from them. And so it's unique in that way. That's kind of why it's called a pronouncement. Malachi is pronouncing the words of God to his people That's what the CSB calls it. You might have a translation that translates it a little differently. I think it's the the ESV and the NIV, maybe even the New American Standard uses the word oracle. That's how it begins. It's an oracle, not a pronouncement. An oracle just means a spoken word of God, a word of God that's spoken. That's, That's what it's saying. But weirdly, the specific word that's used here is the King James Version that gets it the most right. The King James begins the book of Malachi by saying a burden, a burden. Because that's literally what this word means. The word of the Lord to Israel that Malachi is writing with his hand, it is a heavy message. God is burdened for his people. Malachi is bearing this burden to God's people. God is putting a burden on his people to help them feel the weight of what's going on with them of what it looks like for them to reject him. And it also involves a picture of raising, a burden, you have to lift it, right, in order to carry it. There's also kind of a picture of lifting, of raising, like an alarm, like we raise an alarm, we raise a warning. That's what this message is serving to do. 
and God's the one doing it. So it's a very important message for his people. And just another reason why it's so important is that the book of Malachi contains the last words of God for 400 years. Chronologically within scripture, Malachi shows up on the scene, delivers this message of God to his people, and that God is silent for 400 years until he sends Gabriel to deliver his message to Elizabeth about her son, John. During that time, there were no new prophets. They had the word of God still. They have their scriptures to rely upon. But God is not speaking anymore to his people. And so these last words from Malachi are not only meant to raise a warning for his people, but to also serve them in a way to call them back to their relationship with God, to sustain them for this period of time that will carry them into the period in which he finally sends his ultimate messenger, where he comes in the flesh, where the Messiah arrives on the scene. So it's an extremely important for them. And there's a specific reason why they needed this message. It's this, that Malachi delivers this message. He delivers it because God's people had become weak. They had become weak. And he used that word in comparison to the strength that we're trying to grow in as a church. They, they had become weak. God had promised this return from exile. So return to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, the walls, renewing the covenant, all that. He had promised it, and he was bringing it to fruition here with the people. And things seemed pretty good for a while, for a little bit anyway. But then reality had kind of set in for them. After the walls were done and the temple was done and they'd done the covenant ceremony, they just had to like go about their regular life, right? And some of us have experienced that kind of feeling this past week. Like coming off the holidays, because the holidays feel amazing for most of us. You know, lots of lights and presents and amazing songs and bright colors. And then the new year where we can just let go of everything from the past. And it's a blank slate. And we can consider all the things we want to do and accomplish this next year. It feels wonderful. And then this past week happens and we have to go back to the office. And we have to go back to class, right? And we look around our house and there's like confetti from the confetti cannon we shot off. It's just all over the living room. Or maybe that's just my household. And you like have to vacuum it up and clean it up, Right? Like reality sets in. It's like the post-holiday doldrums, the post-holiday slump. That's kind of a little bit what the people are experiencing, except to an nth degree. Like, boy, this doesn't seem that great anymore. They're looking around and finding themselves like, we're poor. We're hungry. There are people around here that want to kill us still. We're not even in charge of ourselves. There's no one on the throne. And so they look around, they're, they're despairing. And what this despair is leading them to do is, is to abandon their faith. They have no trust in God. They're looking around going, I don't, I don't see this at all. They're not strong in their faith, strong in their trust of him. They're weak, and this weakness is manifesting itself in their lives as disregard and disobedience. They are disregarding God and directly disobeying him. And that's why Malachi can help us in our two strong emphasis, to show us what it looks like if Acts shows us what it looks like for God's people to be strong, Malachi can show us what it looks like and how easy it is to remain weak without our reliance upon God's presence and power within us. And it gives us, God's people now, the new Israel, it gives us some specific warnings about patterns that we need to avoid. And Malachi uses a unique structure to do this. His book, his message, it consists of these things. It consists of six 
disputations. That's right, it's on the screen. It consists of six disputations and two postscripts. Six disputations and two postscripts. Now, when I say postscripts, I don't mean like Malachi forgot something and, oh, yeah, P.S., let me say these things real quick. And so that when you get to the end of chapter 4, there's kind of two final little short little warnings, encouragements, challenges, things that Malachi has, kind of in light of everything that's come before, but it's not directly related to those other things. But everything that comes before are these six disputations. Now, that's a big fancy word, and I don't say it so you think, oh, Chris is so smart. That's amazing. No, it's just that's what people call these things, and it's important for you to be biblically knowledgeable and know that's what these things are called. Okay, so they're called disputations because they are addressing disputes between God and his people. There's disputes between them, and they're going to be addressed. And they're going to be addressed specifically by God. They're basically six speeches in which God is dealing with these disputes that he has with his people and that they have with him. And each of these six speeches look a little different, but they have three common characteristics. So they kind of flow this way. First, God states his case. God makes a statement. He states his case for his people. After that, the people question God's case and challenge it. Push back against it, in other words, if you can imagine. And so third, God then, in the rest of his speech, answers their question, refutes their challenge, proves his case, and then gives them promises for the future. And so with all that in mind, kind of as background, we're now going to look then at this first disputation. Okay, that's the next blank. I'm making you write the word disputation twice just to really get it in your head and then you can forget it until it like shows up on Jeopardy or something and you'll feel real smart. So we're gonna look at the first disputation which just flows in the next few verses of Malachi chapter one, okay? So we're gonna see what this dispute is, how God addressed it, and then we're also gonna consider not only what it was saying to God's people then but what it can also teach us now. So follow along with me as I read about this first disputation here in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people of the Lord is cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the border of Israel. So following along with kind of the general flow and structure that these disputations take, Here's how we begin. We begin with God stating his case, okay? And God's case is this. I have loved you and continue to. I have loved you and I continue to love you. God begins this speech and this entire book with the motivation that drives him to do everything he does. And that's his love. God loves. But God does, it's not just something he does. You see, God is love. It's about who he is. 
We use all kinds of words to describe God, to say he is good, he is holy, he is just, he is merciful, he is gracious, he is glorious, all these things. And they're all adjectives used to describe him. But when it comes to love, we certainly would say God is loving. But scripture takes it further, uses a noun form to say that God is love. It's such an essential aspect, so foundational to who he is. He is love. And the type of love that he is, is it is a selfless love. It's a giving love. It's a self-sacrificial love. That's the love that's foundational to who God is. And that's the love that's foundational to how he relates to his people. He holds love for them first. And it's foundational for how he desires his people to relate to him, to love him in return. That's his desire. And it's foundational for how we understand his word the things that he says and what he does and is foundational for everything else that Malachi is going to write that God says. It all starts with his love. But remember, this pronouncement that Malachi is bringing to his people, it's a burden. It's a heavy warning to be carried, to raise the alarm. And the reason that God is sending this alarm, is raising this alarm, the reason why he's giving this burden to Malachi is because he loves his people. I have loved you. Not just in the past. It's not just something I did back then. I love you now. And so that's why I'm sending this message to you. And a lot of us know what it's like to have to give a message like this. Sometimes it's as a parent to a child. As you get older, sometimes it's as a child back to a parent. You sometimes have these conversations with a friend, a classmate, a coworker, maybe even a fellow small group member, or another brother and sister within the church. A conversation in which you have to say, I see trouble ahead of you. Or you have done something to hurt me or to offend another. And this is a conversation that neither one of us want to have. It's going to be uncomfortable. But I am going to tell you these things, not to make you feel bad, not to shame you, not to show you how much better I am, but because I love you. And I am concerned for you. That's why God is sending this message to Malachi. I have loved you. And so I am coming to you with this burden because it's not just something I had in the past. I have love for you now. I continue to love you. And so that's why I'm bringing this to you. Well, how do God's people respond to his statement, to his case, to him saying that he has loved them? Well, we can sum up his people's question with just one word. How? How? How have you loved us? Huh? Tell me. How have you loved us? But this isn't just a temper tantrum that his people are having. It's not driven just purely out of selfishness on their part. God's people have not had it easy. They have been broken. Their restoration has not met the expectations that they feel like they had been given. They are tired, they are poor, they are scared. You know, in some ways they they may feel cursed, looking around themselves at their circumstances, asking themselves, what is going on right now? How did we get here? Where is God? And some of us know what it's like to ask those questions as well. For about the past six months, my family and I have been experiencing something that I've come to call the Kinsley Curse. 
Um, and it's involved all kinds of different things, like multiple bouts with COVID and other diseases. My son was shot in the eye with a Nerf dart and was blind for a couple of weeks. My daughter got injured in soccer and we couldn't recover it. And it led to knee surgery, which has been super awful. My wife's knees keep popping out of joint. We managed to have a car accident with ourselves. We've got an opening to the underworld and our ceiling because of where our air conditioner keeps leaking. We've got mold. And, the, and it's not just our family. Like, this is extended beyond us to, like, affect our extended family. Like, we've got, you know, pe- we've got families that are separated, divorces that are happening, people that are having to go into rehab and deal with addiction. Like, it, we had deaths in the family. Is in, in Earlier, before the 9 o'clock backstage, my iPad died. And so I had to print my message notes out and put them in a notebook. <laughs> Which is not how I like to do things. And look, the reality is, right, that's nothing compared to what people are having to deal with around the world, right? A lot of, a lot of people have it way worse. And frankly, it's nothing compared to what I know some of you are walking through. When we are faced with the real hardships and trials and struggles of this world, it can lead us to despair, to ask the same questions. What is going on here? How did I get here? Where is God? We might read God's word. We might have a reading plan. Like we're really trying to go after it. And we read about his love. And we might be tempted to ask the same thing Israel's asking here in Malachi 1. How? How have you loved us? That's where they find themselves. But they need his love. The fact that they can't see it, has led them to abandon so many things in their relationship with him, but they need it. That's why they find themselves weak. Without his love, they cannot be strong. That's true for each and every one of us as well. But they ask this question of God. It's not just a question, but as a challenge. How? How have you loved us? Okay, well, God's answer is this. The way God answers that question, he says, I chose you. You want to know how I loved you? I chose you. Specifically, he says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. This past Wednesday, as part of his homework, my son uh, was supposed to spend 30 minutes reading. And we were away from the house and he didn't put a book in his backpack. So my wife opened up her phone and opened up our Bible app. I was just going to have him read something. She opened to the book of John or something. And anyway, Haven didn't like it. So he said, give me the phone. So he took the phone, and in the Bible app, he went to Malachi. He did not know I was going to be teaching today. He did not know we were doing Malachi. I don't know why he chose Malachi. Probably because he likes to cause trouble for us sometimes. And so he picked Malachi. And it took him 30 minutes to maybe get through, like, the first five to ten verses. But as he got through them, when he got here, he stopped, and he said, wait a minute, Mom. I thought God was supposed to love everyone. How can it say that he loved Jacob but hated Esau? And that's a really good question. And that question is one of the reasons you don't hear Malachi taught a lot, frankly. It's an uncomfortable question, the way we deal with it. But one thing that might help us is to consider how these words are used here, love and hate. And we could do that by considering how we use those particular words. 
When we think about love, we can say that we love our spouse, we love our children, we love our parents, we love our siblings, we love our friends, we love our church maybe, maybe we love where we work, maybe we love the mountains, maybe we love pizza, maybe we love our dog and our fish, and we love, you know, I don't know, watching, uh, what, Survivor? I don't know. I was going to mention other shows, but bad ones kept coming to mind, sorry. But when we say we love these things, right, we don't mean love in the same way. It makes sense that we love our children differently than we love our dog. Even though for some of us, our dog is one of the children. I understand. But if it comes down to it, we would acknowledge that we love them a little differently. Well, hate can be the same way. We can hate certain politicians. We can hate injustices around the world. We can hate spaghetti. We can hate the beach. We can hate cats. We can hate, right? We can hate all these kinds of things. And we can mean different things by using that one word. And some of them don't even carry the full weight of what the word hate can mean. Well, that's similar in the Bible as well. Love and hate, those words that we translate in English, they can be used to mean different things. And in fact, actually different words can be used for them. And that's true here in Malachi as well. And when we read, when we read these words here and see how they're used, there's certainly a level of affection or lack of affection, which is how we tend to think about love and hate, what we like, what we don't like, what we enjoy, what we don't enjoy. There is some aspect of affection. But more than that, there's also an aspect of choice here. What I love is what I choose, and what I hate is what I reject. You know, in our culture, what we hold up as like the highest form of love is romantic love, like the love of a husband and wife. And uh, when we speak of that kind of love, initially, we talk about it as something you fall into, as if it's a surprise, it was unexpected, you're just walking along and, oh my goodness, all of a sudden I'm in love. And some of us have experienced something like that where it felt all of a sudden and out of the blue and we weren't expecting it and it was amazing and wonderful and, and just the greatest thing ever. That's a part of some of our stories here in this room, certainly, not to, not to deny that. But if you can fall into something, there's obviously the opportunity that you could fall out of it. And so for any married couples here in the room where you would describe the beginnings of your relationship as a love that you fell into, I guarantee that each of those married couples could give a testimony right now of a moment in which there was a temptation to fall out of that love. And in that moment, they made a choice. And their choice was to not fall out, but to continue to love. See, we even know that love is a choice, even in romantic love, that supposedly you can fall into. But biblically, the Bible does not hold romantic love up as the highest form of love. Biblically, the highest form of love is divine love, God's love, that selfless giving, self-sacrificial love that he exhibits, that he is. That's what the ultimate expression of love is. And within that love, there is choice because it's a choosing to love regardless. That's the kind of love that you can have toward an enemy. How else can you love an enemy unless you choose to do so? 
And that's the kind of love that God is talking about here. And that love led him to choose Jacob and not Esau. Because there were options there. There was a choice to be made. There were two options. They're both grandsons of Abraham, sons of Isaac. And it's not like they're sons of Isaac with, Jacob's the son of Isaac with one woman and, and Esau's the son of Isaac with another woman, like an Isaac and Ishmael situation with Abraham. It's not like that. Same dad, same mom, twins. But God chooses one, love, and rejects the other. That's the hate. Now, it's important to understand what God is getting at specifically here. This is an answer to the question of his chosen people, how have you loved us? And his answer is, I chose you. That's the emphasis. The emphasis here is on the choosing of his chosen people. The emphasis isn't yet on the rejection of Esau and his people specifically, who become the Edomites. That's why Edom is mentioned here. That's not the emphasis just yet. It just begins with, I have chosen you because it wasn't a basis on who Jacob or Esau was. It wasn't on a basis of what they did because the choice that God made out of his love happened before they were ever born. We read this in Genesis 25. This is an account of their birth where it says that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife Rebekah conceived, but the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. You see, it was God's sovereign choice to fulfill his promise to make a great nation of Abraham's descendants through the line of Jacob, and not Esau. They would both become large nations. But he would fulfill his covenantal promises through the one that would come through the line of Jacob. And in that choice, he bestowed a particular love on Jacob and therefore Israel that he did not bestow upon Esau and the people that would become the Edomites. Now, one of the reasons that it makes that these questions are so hard to deal with. It makes verses like this so difficult for us. Is there can be explanations for them that might even make logical sense in a way, but they feel really uncomfortable. We don't like them, frankly. And this is one of those here. But this is also where it's important to note, remember why God is choosing a particular people and giving them a blessing of a a particular love. It is so that they might demonstrate what that love and blessing looks like to all peoples. So that through them, all peoples might be blessed. Yes, Esau does not receive this particular love that God bestows upon Jacob, but that does not mean that it is not possible for Esau to know God's love. It also doesn't mean that every person in Israelite experiences his love through faith. Because certainly there would be people in Israel who did not believe. There were Israelites who were evil, evil people, evil kings from Israel, and they were judged and destroyed accordingly. 
But this is a love that is driving God to accomplish his purposes, not just for Israel, but for all peoples, for the possibility of every one. He's doing it because he wants to do it, because he does love everyone. But this isn't just something he's done in the past for them. You see, within their question, how have you loved us, is a challenge. Basically saying, you haven't loved us. And God refutes that challenge by saying, I remain resolute. That's your next blank. God's refutation is, I remain resolute. In other words, I continue to love you. I, can, I remain committed to my choice to choose you and to love you. It's not just something I did back then. It's something I continue now. Has your once thriving kingdom been destroyed? Yes. Is the throne of David empty? Yes, it is. Had the people of Israel lost their homes and been taken into exile? Yes, they had. Did they deserve it? Yes. And God gave them chance after chance after chance after chance because of his love. And the reason why he brought about the destruction of Judah and the exile was to wake them up. It was an act of love for them. Just as now his return of them, his reclamation of them is an ongoing act of love for them. He remains faithful to them, merciful toward them, gracious to them, loving to them, despite their disregard of him and their disobedience of him. And the way they can know this, that they can see that he is continuing to love them now, is all they have to do is look around them. Look at the Edomites and see what has happened and what is happening with them. Because God's proof that he offers of his case, that not only have I loved you, I chose you, but I continue to love you and I continue to choose you, is to show them this. His proof is that there were other options equally undeserving. God's people continuously, it's just a cycle throughout the Old Testament of them abandoning him, disobeying him, rejecting him, and him bringing about judgment to call them to repentance, to get them to return to him, and just starting the cycle all over. That's what's happening here in Malachi, and he's doing it again. Because he is so loving toward them. The Edomites, you see a different story. They are also undeserving of God's forgiveness, of his restoration, of his patience, of his mercy, of his grace. They're just as undeserving as Israel because they deserve the judgment. They deserve the punishment. They deserve the wrath. And that is what the Edomites receive. And it starts with Esau. Yes, Esau was not chosen to continue the covenant, but he was still Isaac's son. Isaac still taught him to worship the one true God, and yet Esau rejected it. He married multiple pagan women and adopted the worship of their gods. And his descendants continued in that practice. And not only that, they became active enemies of God's people. When God brought his people out of Egypt to the promised land, and they began conquering all the peoples there, he did not let them attack Edom because they were their brothers. God protected Edom. And yet Edom's response was to continuously attack Israel to continuously attack his people. When Babylon came in and conquered Jerusalem and carried the people off into exile, it was the Edomites who came in and supported them and plundered the city. And so if the people wanted to think God doesn't love us, surely 
They should look at Edom and see what it looks like to experience God's rejection. Now, the rejection is what's deserved by both. So what's amazing is that he would choose to love any of them, which is what's true for us as well. And that's the message that Malachi wants them to get. The Edomites, they might say that they want to rebuild, but God will continue to demolish them, to continue to demonstrate the righteous judgments that's deserved. They disobey him because when they talk about rebuilding, it's not a returning to God. Like contrast it with what we experienced with Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah brings a message of judgment to Nineveh, another pagan nation, and what do they do? They repent. And God forgives. Edom experiences God's judgment. And what do they do? Forget it. We still don't need you. We'll just rebuild. We'll show you. What is a holy God to do? No, you will not. I will show you. So that finally leads to the promise that God gives to his people in this message. You will see. God's promises, you will see. And what would they see? One, they would see the ultimate destruction of Edom. Coming over the next few centuries, within this period of 400 years, that would happen. Edom would be no more. They would see that. But even beyond that, ultimately, the people would see the full and ultimate proof of God's love for them. When he would send his promised messenger, the Messiah, to fully demonstrate his love, not just for them, but for all peoples, that even while we were completely deserving of his punishment, dead in our sins and our wrongdoings and our disobedience, he demonstrated his love for us and that Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the promised messenger, died for us. He would then build his church, the new temple, where he would dwell with each of us and empower us for the work that he has for us. And upon his promised return, he would bring with him a new Jerusalem where we would dwell with him for all eternity. And he would do that because he loves his people. So because what should we learn from this message that Malachi delivered to Israel on behalf of God by his hand? I have two suggestions. So quickly, the first one is this. Just, the first one is to bring your doubts and despairs to God. The lesson here, though the people were doubting God's love, it's not to walk away with, that's the evil thing, so stop doing that. But when they begin to doubt his love because of their despair, they walked away from him. But God's desire is for you to come to him with your doubts and your despair, with whatever is in your life, to come to him because he loves you and he is the only one who can provide you the comfort and confidence that you need. So bring your doubts and despair to God. And then lastly, remember and rest in the love of God. Remember and rest in the love of God. He loves you. Christian, he loves you. And how has he loved you? He chose you. He chose you at some point to hear the gospel. 
He chose to soften your heart toward that message. He chose to grant you the faith you needed to respond in repentance and belief. He chose to save you, to forgive you, to adopt you into his family. He loves you. And if you are not yet a believer, you're not yet a Christian, maybe this is the first time you heard this, you have questions about this, and boy, you're really not sure how to feel about it. My message to you is that God loves you. And how do we know that? Because he chose you to be here today. Not, not because of anything I've said is particularly awesome, but because he's chose you to hear from his word and to hear this, he loves you. And he is calling you to abandon doubt and despair, to abandon your disobedience, to turn away from your sin and your selfishness and to turn to him, to trust him. He's calling you to do that today. So answer his call.